she's a human lie detector, and she's already asking questions like she knows something's up. I'm Eddie Webb. Bullshit. And today we're going to talk about Poker Face here on Genreless. Hello and welcome to another episode of Genreless. And I swear, I almost actually said I'm Chris Spivey just to see if you would do that. And I regret <laughs> not doing that now. <laughs> you should lean into that urge every really time you should. have it because we're known for our humor and comedy. And that is why everyone comes back to this podcast. It's not about the shows that we cover, the in-depth analysis that we give them, our takes as both creators talk about something else has been created. It is for our comedic timing, our actor-like repertoire. Wow, I mispronounced the word. <laughs> Back and forth. When did I become <laughs> Sylvester the Cat talking about Tweety Bird? I say, I say, well, I, I say, say, I say, I say. <laughs> no, actually, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I have been noticing, like, weirdly, the past month or so we've been getting more people hey you can talk about this hey you can talk about that it's like oh hey people are interested in one our our opinions on on certain shows and there are shows that we are nominally inclined to talk about so that's actually pretty cool so i will give some behind the scenes stuff this morning eddie and i when we should have been recording because it is in the wee hours in the morning for me spent about 30 minutes just talking about marvel so if you want us to do another superhero run of anything on shows Wait about three more years and it might happen. <laughs> yeah, we're, I mean, we're and I mean, we, we talked about this before, but like, honestly, that was, uh, we learned a lot from doing that in terms of what not to do in future. Like the fact that we're taking this break in the middle of a Doctor Who run, I, I'm super glad we're doing it because I was starting to feel like, uh, I'm not, I'm a little tired of it. Now that we're doing this again, I'm already going, okay, I can't wait to talk about Doctor Who again. So I'm glad that we're continuing with the structure at least. Don't uh, lie. Yeah, the real reason that you're excited that we took a break is because you have to talk about JNT next time we talk about Doctor Who and you were sweating bullets. They were like all over the screen. I was like, Eddie, you're you're in England and it is fucking freezing over there. How are you sweating that much? I love how you just keep pushing this on me. Like, like there's like, I don't have somebody else, this podcast who can also talk about these topics, <laughs> but see, I will not be the person that that will not be the host of that show. I will merely be the sidekick of that show. I would be your companion. Nay, nay, nay. I would be the brig for that one. So you're going to shoot me with bullets that'll probably not actually affect me because that's how things work. Well, no, the brig for the fifth doctor, I would have left unit and then became a university professor because right. that is what the brigadier right. would have done out of everything in the world. And that won't it all be retconned when he meets the seventh doctor. Uh, digression, because I know we're not covering Modern I'm Dead. Uh, do you know that that was actually supposed to be Ian Chesterton originally? Yes, it did. <laughs> okay, cool. Of course you did. Why, why don't we even add, bring these things up? Because you know everything I do. We, we share a brain. <laughs> Love it. All right. So we're here to talk about Sherlock Holmes. And so. I wish. Actually, no, I don't wish. Actually, we're actually here to talk about Poker Face. And I, and I, and I, I don't want to say like I wish in the sense of I don't want to talk about this show because I actually do want to talk about this show. I actually, this is one of the rare times where I went in with, with no preconceptions except for we had talked about both the Knives Out movies. And it's like, I want more Rain Johnson. Uh, and so I, I 
said, okay, I'm going to watch Poker Face, and I am super delighted. Um, but also, I love talking about Sherlock Holmes, so I'm not going to turn down an opportunity to talk about Sherlock Holmes, which this is definitely not. No, 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 not at all. Do you want to talk about some of the production stuff around it, some of the inspiration for the show? How would you like uh, to start? Would you like to talk uh, so, about how awesome Natasha Leone is, just in general? God, Natasha Leone is so good. Okay, so that's just that's a good segue into the production stuff. This show, as far as I could tell, was written around Natasha Leone. Uh, Further understands, basically, she she was only the uh, only person considered for Charlie. And she said in an interview that she even said, like, do you want me to change my accent? Because she has a very distinctive New York accent. And Rachel's like, fuck no, I want that. Um, that that's exactly what I, I want you in this role. So that's an interesting point. It's also, it was done as uh, uh, an original for Peacock Network, which was not a sign of... if. Something I was I, I wasn't really into it because like I thought Peacock I don't know if I want to watch that. If I could add a, a bit in before you move on though, oh sure. One of the, the things because it gives me a chance to shout out one of my favorite podcasts is that Natasha Leone knows RJ. I'm gonna call oh. RJ. That, that's how close we are. RJ wow. because he's married to uh, Karina Longworth who is an incredible like film historian who does one of my favorite podcasts cause you must remember this, that oh, okay. if you're a historical writer at all, or just like film and media in general, you should be listening to like, I cannot stress enough. And he'd seen her work in the first season of Russian doll. And then that's how sort of how it all dovetailed together. But you're saying. Yeah. Uh, and so, what I understand, Peacock basically just said, here's a bunch of money. Please make something for us. Just anything. And they could not get the rights to the Knives Out movies because Netflix has already bought those rights. So it's like you can't make Knives Out, but you can make something, anything else. Um, and so – and we talked about this in the Knives Out episode, so if you're not on Patreon, you don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to try not to refer to those too much, but it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> in the sense that – Knives Out was kind of his take on Agatha Christie style mysteries. So he's like, okay, then I will do Columbo. And before you ask, Columbo was a very influential show in the 70s, mostly because of Peter Welk, uh, who was fantastic, uh, but also because it had a distinctive format, um, which kind of got dubbed as, as opposed to Whodunit, um, it became How Catch'em, which is a terrible name. Uh, but basically, the structure is that we watch the actual crime happen. So there's no figuring out who did what because the audience completely knows. The tension is does Columbo, or in this case, Charlie, figure out how to close the net around the person who actually committed the crime? So it is not a mystery. And, and it's something that. I internally debated about when we talked about putting it into this run um, because it, it, it has a lot of mystery hallmarks, but it's not actually a mystery. It is more the criminals doing good in this case because Charlie is a criminal on the run, um, and she goes into town and fixes things. So There's I love – I know that you're, you think it's a bad name, but I think how Ketchup is a great name. I, <laughs> I Something about just how on the nose it is is inspiring, and to see – Leon Chandling 
Peter Falk throughout the entire run of the show that if you've seen Columbo at all, you'll know that is exactly who she's channeling to get it done. Yes. And it touches on like a bit of some other shows like the Rockford Files, Magnum P.I. And today my namesake is um, Sam Beckett, which is a, a specific shout out to Quantum Leap because it is literally her going from place to place and changing their lives before she moves on to her next thing. Her car being her own sort of quantum device where she jumps to another life. Because she makes a specific point during the series to talk about how it's easy to sort of change identities. It's funny you mention that because I had thought the other show, because I mean, it's not because Columbo is a police officer and she's not, she's on on the run. So I had thought the other show being referenced was actually the Incredible Hulk from the seventies. Yeah. Because it's another kind of walk into town. But but you bring up a good point that there's a, a vein of, Black better term blue collar detectives mm-hmm. that's being tapped into here. And specifically to the Peter Falk reference of detectives that come across as dumber than they actually are with intent. Uh, it's not that they stump it's not expect clues or they stumble into problems. It, no, they're extremely intelligent, but they recognize that people will underestimate them if they are charming and a little slow. And that's exactly what she's tapping into. Plus also a very naturalistic speaking style where she stutters, talks over herself, corrects herself uh, that Peter Falk masterfully did because it, it comes across as very much, oh, this is how normal people talk. And then you realize by the end of each episode, oh, no, he intentionally structured what he was saying and how he presented that to, to, to get that uh, the person he's interviewing to, to, to screw up. So it's just – and like – down to the credits and how the show was shot. Again, it's it's clearly a show heavily inspired by the seventies, and a little bit of it also. And I, I think touches on a reverse of the fugitive, because you definitely mm. have a force which for the fugitive was law enforcement. And anyone that doesn't know the fugitive, I mean, if you haven't seen the series, or the Harrison Ford movie from the nineties. A uh, man is falsely accused of of killing his wife, so he goes on the hunt after a one armed man. Entire premise mm-hmm. of the movie right there, Harrison Ford, Doctor, or in the other show, Silla Doctor, going from town to town looking for the one-hour man and helping people along the way. But he always has to leave, play, insert Lonely Man song, uh, because the police <laughs> are always hot on his trail. Here, we've got an enforcer that is always hot on her trail. Mm-hmm. And you touched on some of the things that Columbo did was always sort of downplaying his own intelligence. I like here the riff on it where it's not necessarily her playing down on it, at least for the pilot episode, which we can only briefly touch on since we can talk Mm -hmm. more about production is that she makes a point of not drinking alcohol and drinking coffee because it's supposed to be a helping you think drink. Right. Like that shows that she's always known she can do it. Slacker deciding, all right, I need to be on cue. So does something else, but talk about production. If you like, I'm sorry. I was, I, I, honestly, that's all I've really had on the uh, the production side is that uh, basically from everything I understand, because I didn't do a ton of research on this, um, but everything I understand is that basically uh, uh, Peacock slash NBC just gave Brian Johnson a, a bunch of money, um, and he said, I want to make Columbo again, and they said, great, sure, whatever, do that. Um, just please make us more money, um, and he did it. Now, I will say one thing that we talked about in the Knives out episodes uh, i we both did but i know i specifically gushed a lot about the structure of both movies and how intricate they are these shows are not that 
you don't have the clockwork constantly second guessing the audience, doing things like showing the audience the actual mystery and then pretending like they didn't see it because it's not. We I mean, they show the mystery; it's very clear. Here's here's the answer. I will slightly push back on that because I, I I myself have not had time to do all the research, but those things are there too, even in the TV series. For instance, just one instance I know off the top of my head is that when the boyfriend slash husband is kicked out of the club and he goes to the metal detector, the metal detector doesn't go off because he doesn't have his gun. Right. So you have some of those there that is like telling you specifically what you know. Oh, right. no, because television is more of like a week-to-week structure compared to a movie that's like we have months and months of time to get everything all that, in that, that's, that's That's where I was going. Yeah, I think we're on the same page is that, is that you see some of that, um, but they're around specific clues rather than the entire thing being a puzzle box. But one of the things I do like it, – it does keep a lot of momentum from – the Knives Out movies, and one of them is that it just refuses to explain origin stories because that's not, especially mm-hmm. for in this case, that's not the the shows that he's homaging didn't do that, except for maybe The Incredible Hulk. But maybe some superhero movies could take a, a note from that, right? So we don't always need to see the origin. Uh, so the premise of the show is not really a spoiler to talk about. It is that. She, she can tech lies. And it's not a spoiler because the show, the first episodes, as we'll see, just presents this as a fact. She can always detect when someone's lying. It's not explained. It's not whether it's psychic power. Or she's good at body language. It's never explained. She doesn't even entirely understand it because it doesn't matter. What matters is she has this ability, and the entire show hinges around the fact that she has this ability. This is one of my favorite things because in writing, in any writing and as a viewer, you should always be willing to give the show, I think, or anything, one conceit for their universe to establish itself that makes it different. Mm-hmm. And for this entire universe, the, the Charlie verse, if you will, because <laughs> it sounds better than the kale verse. If I say the kale verse and I start thinking that maybe I'm a little hungry and I want to eat some kale because good roasted kale with like a little bit of salt on it. No, ah. but <laughs> the one conceit, of course, is Charlie's, we'll say superpower is to detect right. the truth. Right. And although it's not 100% sure, it is implied via uh, Glass Onion that Knives Out and Poker Face may be in the same universe. So we'll see. Because it's unclear if she is – if the person on the video call at the very beginning of Glass Onion is actually the actor or is Charlie. True. I, I don't remember them specifically saying Natasha or a name. Right, right. But my inclination would be that it is the actress and not the character. I, I suspect it was meant to be just a fun in-joke, and so therefore it probably is not actually connected. But I like to believe that it is that this, there's an entire universe of detectives with strange powers that just exist. And they all exist in the same universe. I like that too, but I, I go for my assertion because of the status of the other three on the call and the status of sure. uh, because they're all actors Blanc or celebrities. Himself. Well, they're all super famous and Blanc is super famous in that universe too. And Charlie would not be super famous because that kind of goes against like the vibe of the show, which I love. So mm, a production point that we'll probably, that you may have touched on that you want to touch on is that 
I debated about what name to pick today for a specific reason because I almost mm-hmm. went Shadow Moon. Okay. I wait for beat to see if you know Shadow Moon. I not not reference. American Gods. Because much like uh, Johnson's premise here, Gaiman wrote American Gods to touch on all the backstories in America. And Charlie's Journey is about all those little corners of America and sort of following mm. a, a similar sort of trend. And so okay. I almost went Shadow Moon, but I thought that would have been too much of a stretch. So I, I pulled it back in. And I loved the idea that that was the premise of the show is to go for all the small pieces of Americana and make it feel like common people I were talking about originally and yep. not some big grandiose world shattering thing like a lottery ticket for $25,000 or a band mm-hmm. trying to find a hit song or like right. grannies at a nursing home who were 60s protesters like beautiful right and it has the advantage again we'll talk about this in more detail but uh, it has the advantage of it, it, it neatly gets rid of a lot of the uh, technological advantages of a modern day mystery or structure. So Charlie can't easily look things up on her cell phone or can't easily, you know, Google things or, or use specific devices because she is on the run that cuts her off from a lot of technology. Right? And she's living in areas that don't necessarily have access to the and grace technology. So, she has lower resources. People she works with have lower resources, and it tells a very specific kind of story. But it also means that you can still homage those seventies shows in in feel and structure without making it implausible that these things are happening in the modern day. So much so that you you may have noticed from just from some of the podcasts we're doing, and I, I've been watching more that I'm doing a lot of very specific time dated detective sort of investigative show research. Mm-hmm. Jill and I watched the first episode of Moonlighting last night. Oh, wow. How'd that hold up? <clears throat> surprisingly better than you would think. Not great, really? but surprisingly better than you would think. Okay. And one I, of the I didn't point- help at all. <laughs> well, it, it, I would say on a scale of 100, it was probably a good 75. Okay. That is more than I expected. Because there, there is some stuff in, in there. Oh, is, yeah. But. One of the things that we pointed out is they had to do research and real detective work in that show. And since it was 85, it showed you what detective work is like. It's not them pulling right. out a phone. It's him with like some sort of fax machine computer and like piles and reams and reams of paper. And then we need a map. And they have to literally go to an archives building to look at a map mm-hmm. to show you how different the research was and how it takes time. And that was a, a point that Jill turned to me and said, wow, look how long they're taking to do all this. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Uh, so is there anything else that you want to talk about before we dive in? Because uh, uh, we have some pretty long synopses to get through. And we, we were on the clock today. Just that <laughs> I feel that we're going to have to do a 70s and 80s detective run sooner than later. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, honestly, I after watching this, I genuinely want to see if Columbo holds up. Because. Yeah. This is not to say that – I don't want to detract from Poker Face because Poker Face itself I think is genuinely good. Um, but also it's so clear where the inspiration is that I want to kind of look at them in contrast to each other. If it's at all helpful, Jill and I watched the first episode of Columbo maybe a year ago. Because mm-hmm. of COVID, we're going through a lot of back catalog of shows and things right. that we're trying to see if we want to see. And the thing to remember about Columbo, at least originally, is they were filmed like movies. 
because oh, Peter okay. Falk was busy and he wanted to do the show, but he also wanted them to be like fewer and higher quality. And so that's what mm-hmm. a lot of the gumbos were. So they're like an hour and a half or, or more by themselves. Oh, oh, that's right. Because then they, they split a bunch of them up into two episodes. They may have done it later for television, but initially they were like, like that. So that's something to remember uh, for us to remember if we decide to do them, because we may only do one episode or two at most, because that's right. Three to three and a half hour block of time. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Well, then, yeah. uh, Let's dive into uh, episode one, uh, Dead Man's Hand. Uh, And like I said before, just to say that we watched it, and it surprisingly holds up surprisingly well. Also, I would say Columbo holds up better than uh, Moonlighting did. But you're saying. Okay, thank you. Good to know. Uh, but, and also, uh, just one of the things I've noticed with this thing, and maybe we think about this for the Texas run, is that because of the nature of the plots, there's a lot more to cover. Uh, we're noticing that for the past few episodes. So, I mean, I'm gonna, we may have to pause in the middle of the episode to talk about things. We'll see how it goes. In Laughlin, Nevada, while cleaning a hotel room at the Frost Casino, housekeeper Natalie Hill discovers disturbing content on a laptop computer of Casimir Kane, a very wealthy patron of the casino. She takes a picture with her phone and shows it to the head of security, Cliff Legrand, and the casino's manager, Sterling Frost Jr. Sterling claims he will take care of the matter, discreetly deleting the photos from Natalie's phone and telling her to go home. Acting on Sterling's orders, Cliff kills Natalie and her husband, staging the crime scene to look like a murder-suicide. Earlier that day, Natalie had carpooled with her friend Charlie Kale, who works at the casino as a cocktail waitress. Shortly after their arrival, Natalie's abusive husband, Jerry, burst into the casino, drunkenly demanding to see her. Charlie distracted Jerry until Cliff and security guards were able to take his gun and throw him out of the building. I'm going to stop there uh, because what this sets up is what appears to be the – I've only watched two episodes, but it appears to be the format for the show, which is that we see the crime taking place. And then we go back to see how Charlie was involved in events before things got to that point. Yes, that that is a format it takes. And I think that is a great one to use for this type of show. Mm -hmm. Because the show isn't about it. It's about Charlie, but it's not about Charlie. Right. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about it is that this is my hazy memory of of Columbo uh, is that the crime takes place, and then Columbo, as the cop, comes onto the scene and then investigates from there on. This, what happens with this, is that we we, we start to anticipate that Charlie is involved in these events in some way, but we don't see what her involvement is yet. Then we go, so we see person being murdered, but then we go back and learn more about that person, usually via Charlie. Um, and that is another great format, be, our structural change, because it allows us to care about the victim. In a way that sometimes the Columbo format didn't always do well. If our, again, this hazy memories of Columbo. Uh, you're pretty spot on. It's, for instance, Johnson's show here is more about the victim and us empathizing with them, compared to Columbo, that was more about the villain of the piece and us getting to view their crimes through their eyes. And both are very are similar, but have different intents, which also mm-hmm. gives us one of Charlie's superpowers that we'll understand is not only her ability to take lies, but she has an intrinsic empathy and sense of justice, regardless yes. of her own station and situation. That is one thing that is an interesting uh, change from Benoit Blanc is that uh, Benoit Blanc is still coming from the tradition of more cerebral detectives. 
the, the case and the puzzle is the most interesting part. And he still has a strong sense of justice, but it's slightly abstract and something we, again, talked about at length on the Patreon episode, so I'm not going to go into depth here. This is more of the hard-boiled genre, weirdly enough, because it's about the messiness that people do and, and how messy people can be. And so the crimes are usually not compli complicated. There's usually a nuance there. Uh, there's usually one or two things that, that hinge on making it clever. But generally, it's about just people and how they act and why they do it. Uh, and so giving Charlie a chance to very quickly connect with people uh, is something the show does not explicitly tell you because the show explicitly tells you she can take lies. Uh, but it implicitly tells you she's also just very sympathetic, like you said, very empathetic, um, and, and quickly realizes people are in trouble. It would only be faster if she had jelly babies. Which I have, by the way, uh, I have bought a bag of those today, finally. It's been a year. <laughs> I finally bought a bag of jelly babies from the grocery store. So. The, also, I want to give a slight shout out. I don't remember the actress's name, but this is also another, the maid here, the cleaner for the hotel is also an actress from Orange is New Black, much like Natasha Lyonne, because Orange is right. New Black was also one of the shows that helped revitalize her career that mm. enabled her to then be able to go and make Russian Doll, which then put her on Johnson's radar to be able to have this great show. Yeah. Which... Any other, well, not any other, but most other showrunners or producers, I would say, if they, they just went with the acting pool. I feel like Johnson may be kind of intentionally evoking that vibe of there are only five actors in the world thing that sometimes happens in 70s television. Indeed, we pointed it out in the past two episodes. By taking people that were adjacent to Leon and bringing them into this first episode, that kind of vibe of, I've seen these people before. Was, was probably intentional homage to that, again, that era of television. And at the same time, it also lets Johnson do something else that we've touched on in the Knives Out podcast, is that he goes back to a specific demographic of people that are supposedly associated with very specific roles. Mm. And for instance, that's what he does with the other Orange is New Black actress, because that is a potentially wrong idea that people would have about who would be doing that, who would be doing that job. And it mm -hmm. goes and plays again into a stereotype that he then goes and adds depth and complexity to her character with. Right. Cause I mean, again, like when I first watched this uh, and I saw, I was like, Oh, and it's a, it's a, a Latina maid. Oh no. But I was like, it's Ryan Johnson. There's going to be a twister. And sure enough, it was. So by having structure going back in time, it allows us to add allows him to add depth and structure, like you're saying, to those characters um, in a way that the normal structure for this wouldn't allow for. And it would have just been a quick stereotype. So it's once again, Rain Johnson is introducing a stereotype and then slowly subverting it. And he does this consistently throughout the show because that's just what he's good at. But the small tweak of having the show effectively rewind in time and then start again also allows us to because we know what's going to happen we start to look for clues in the show and i think this points to what you're saying before so we know what to look for because show shows what to look for 
And then it starts playing through those events again from kind of her perspective, which I'll, we're about to get to. But there's a little bit of misdirection happening. Not done, but a little bit of misdirection happening there. Not nearly the same level as, as either Night's Out or, dear God, Glass Onion. But <laughs> you're right. There are a couple of things. The, the main twists, it goes, you're expecting, we told you to look here. So you're going to look here again when you see it again. And there's something else actually happening that that is, is a bit of a twist. So what should be a, a little bit of a boring formula because you're watching the same show twice is actually very fascinating because it's the, I know what I just saw is not the whole story. And I said it before, but anything that Johnson does, I will watch and give it a chance. And I, I am 97% almost always in his corner. Yeah, yeah. I'm still new to this, but because of the strength of what we talked about, I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I was very happy I did. So anyway, let's get back to this. Charlie has the ability to detect lies, which Sterling wants to utilize to fleece Kane during the illegal poker games he holds in his hotel room rather than gamble on the casino floor. Appealing to her sense of loyalty to and fear of Sterling Frost Sr., who has spared her life when he caught her using her lie detecting skills playing poker at the casino several years ago, Sterling persuades Charlie to join his plan. Uh, persuade kind of force. Although she feels someone easily twice interrupted their meetings to take mysterious phone calls, Charlie can tell that Sterling is telling the truth when he confessed to hoping to impress her as his father, who considers him to be barely capable of running the casino. The next day, Charlie learns of Natalie's murder, with the police concluding that, Char that Jerry killed her before killing himself. She suspects something else must have happened since Natalie called her before her shift was over and left the casino in a hurry. At the police station, Charlie is denied access to the evidence locker, but sees a picture of the crime scene depicting Jerry with a gun in his right hand. Charlie knows that Jerry was left-handed. Sterling is informed of her visits, angrily ordering Charlie to stop investigating any further and focus on their plan. Uh, so again, I'm going to pause there. One of the things I love about this kind of setup is, again, the show just – Charlie's called into Sterling's office, and he's like, so my dad tells me you can detect lies. And she goes, yes. And then they go, okay. I'm not going to build an entire plan around that. No question, not how do you do <laughs> yeah. this. It's just I accept at face value that this is a thing that exists, and now I want to con somebody else for doing this. Uh, which is just great because, like, like you said, the, the the universe. This is the universe that's being built here. This is a universe where Charlie can one hundred percent tell people are lying. And the reason it works so well is that it he tests her before he goes in with it. Like his father has mm -hmm. told him something. That is why her entire life has changed, and everyone else is somewhat aware of it. But he tests her, and once she proves it, that's why he goes with it. Because if it's we get throughout the premise throughout this entire series is that his, what his father says is law, like hands down. Mm -hmm. And he yep. is living in that shadow, which you get all those complexities that Adrian Brody is portraying, um, portraying through it and how he really wants to do this. And he mentions, I don't think it was like so much to impress his father, but to prove that he can do something and not be a fuck up. And it's the, I won't be a fuck up part. And where he literally then goes and tells you another, another Johnson, I would rather die than mess this up. Like mm -hmm. already layering that in for you. And she knows it's true. Like right here, right. she knows what he's saying is a hundred percent true. Yeah. Uh, Johnson. The other oh, thing I love about this is, um, and to your point earlier is how amazingly low stakes this all is. Right. Like, yes, he's the owner of a casino, but it's super clear. This is not a glamorous casino. This is, 
uh, a casino that's barely scraping by. Um, it's also setting up his father as this terrifying force, which we only get a couple of phone calls of his voice and everybody else just talking about him, right? We don't know if he is a crime boss, if he's just this guy's dad, if he owns a bunch of – we don't know what his deal is. We just know that he is scary, and he has clocked Charlie before, um, and Charlie is terrified of this person, whoever he is. But beyond that, we're really looking at a guy who did some horrible shit in his laptop, which the show dances around, but I'm pretty sure child porn, and he runs a – illegal poker game that's maybe a few thousand dollars maybe you know five digits at most this is disturbingly low stakes this this, this is but this it it actually makes the show better because it's what people will do for so little and how yeah. much it means to them and that matters and that's important because it's human it's almost abstract to worry about i murdered someone for their publishing company and their 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 book writing empire um there, there's still human elements there but it's a little kind of abstracted whereas this is the i will kill you for a few grand uh and to keep my name in because i'm afraid of my dad these are extremely human stakes that are very compelling in a very fast fashion well for knives out that sort of glamorizes everything and puts it up mm -hmm. here as more of a high societal stake compared to what it what reality is which is usually i don't want to say low stakes but they're less lucrative stakes and it shows how important money is for the other like 99 percent of us how right. every day you're struggling to get by and there are different gradations of that struggle mm. Absolutely. And I want to touch on Cliff because we have Cliff here yep. who is an enforcer who is taking orders from him, but you also get the sense that Cliff isn't doing it because he says, because he's being told by Adrian Birdie's character to do it. Right. Yeah. There's a fantastic dynamic of he is the subordinate, but also clearly the, the safe pair of hands as far as, Sterling's father is concerned. So he clearly has worked with Sterling's father, and so he's doing this because he has loyalty to Sterling's father, but not to the son, and thinks this, and it's very clear he thinks the son's a fuck-up. Yeah. Um, and so, again, in a very short space, we get some very complicated human relationships happening here. There's there's really four main characters, five if you count the ex-husband, although he's not really in this too long. But really, there, there's some interesting texture relationships with all of these characters. And it's it's done very very quickly and i think one of the reasons that colombo and in my opinion poker face works so well is that by the structure of the show having charlie come in later and the overall series is about charlie it lets him give room for like the victims and the villains to breathe and have deep complex relationships and plotting and so that would let you draw in higher name people because they get meaty roles and it lets you do all those things and still keep your general premise. Right. But even better Damn, is that out. unlike Benoit Blanc, which again, I love Benoit Blanc. Don't get me wrong. I won't watch anything with Benoit Blanc in it. Uh, but Benoit Blanc is the outsider, right? He comes into an existing situation and helps to solve the problem. This Charlie is intricately involved in this at this point. 
she 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 has stakes personal stakes in this as well as anybody else and throughout this part where, where she's setting up the poker game her instincts are telling her she should not be doing this this is going to go badly it's really clear she's extremely reluctant to do this but she doesn't feel like she has much of a choice uh, and that's also interesting because we don't have many shows where the detective is part of the emotional or the relationship map that's happening around the crime. And you have, I, w- I want to touch on at least one more part of it. And you have Sterling who, when he t- gives her the offer for the thing, she specifically asks right away how you're saying, if I say no to this, what does that mean? And he doesn't say they're going to fire or kill her, but it is implied. Right. So once again, it goes, it layers on. And so when we get the turn that she's going to do shortly, when you talk about it, that shows once again, the strength of Charlie's character. Yeah. Uh, Anything else before we move on? No, I'm good. Okay. So Sterling orders Charlie to stop investigating, Uh, ignoring his warning. Charlie sneaks into Natalie's home. She retrieves Natalie's tablet computer and is eventually able to unlock it, which is amazing. I'll I'll talk about that. Uh, On it, she finds the deleted photos from Natalie's phone, including that of the criminal content on Kane's laptop. Charlie takes his evidence to Sterling, who claims they'll report Kane to the FBI after the operation that night. While at the bar, she sees a news report of the murder-suicide that includes video footage of Jerry's outburst and expulsion from the casino. Charlie confronts Sterling, telling him she knows he ordered Cliff to kill Natalie. She shows him the footage from Jerry's expulsion. As he passed through the metal detector, the indicator of light was green, proving he did not have his gun because Cliff kept it. Sterling rebuffs the claims and threatens to make her seem like the suicide herself by throwing her off the balcony. However, she reveals she recorded a bed sent to Kane a conversation where Sterling detailed the plan to fleece him. While the recording cannot incriminate him for criminal activity, it damages the casino's reputation, prompting Kane and the other gamblers to leave. Realizing his plan to blown up his face, Sterling throws himself off the balcony. You know, pause there real quick. I, I love Charlie unlocking a tablet computer because it shows that she's a very different detective than many other shows. She is more emotionally smart than intellectually intelligent. So something that is a pure puzzle actually confounds her, and the way she solves it is by getting into the head of the person who locked the tablet. Mm-hmm. I love that. Which part of me, if it wasn't so well done, would be a little upset that we would have the, the female lead of a detective show mm. be less cerebral than like a male lead would be. Right. But it is done so well, and she is demonstrated so many other great detective skills throughout this this show up to this point that I, I I give it that. Yeah, because we'll see more in other episodes, not quite in this episode, is that she actually is extremely knowledgeable in other areas, but again, they're areas that suit her stakes. They suit her environment. Her knowledge of technology specifically is what actually seems to be lacking here. We don't get that context yet. We still don't have it in this episode. We'll find out a bit more later. Um, but she's not great with technology specifically. But the fact is, is that her passion and her desire to see things done or see her friends vindicated is that she will attempt to brute force a four-digit code while she's half asleep throughout <laughs> the entire night. It's a great comedic moment, but also tells you a lot about her personality. I don't know how to 
fix this. So I'm going to just keep trying and banging my head against it until it gives. <laughs> and it, something else that goes shows how much she's part of the community is that she can't break into the house by herself, but she knows someone else and their backstory and history and is friendly enough to have them go and do something for her. And mm-hmm. even when that person cracks open the door, her first response is in, is not, to, you don't steal anything, knowing their full history and what they're going to do right. anyway. So it's comedic beat, but it shows that she's part of a community and that people like her in general. Mm-hmm. And which reinforced, which is reinforced earlier when they're all out smoking before she's called up to Sterling's with like her crew of people who she's friendly with. So you mm-hmm. get constant, like, this is a part of our community. Someone who is, who is, we joke around with and we, we do a solid four, which a lot of detective shows don't have. They have contacts or people they can pressure into things or exchange favor for favor at best. Right. Because the role of detective classically has been to be the outsider. There have been some academic uh, critical analysis where there's a lot of overlap between uh, the detective, the gunslinger, uh, the samurai, uh, the someone who comes from outside of a community to help enforce justice on a community that's gone wrong. Um, but that is not what's happening here. What's happening here is that Charlie is part of her community and she is using her community to try to bring justice to it. And that is a different but very interesting take while still maintaining the attention of someone who is trying to solve the problem, but she's solving it from inside of the relationship map, if you will, rather than from outside of it. And something I didn't do that now just occurred to me that I kind of want to do is watch a, a couple of episodes of Murder, She Wrote to see how they may or may not parallel to Poker Face. Oh, that's a good point. Because Jessica Fletcher is definitely part of a community of like Cabot Cove for most of that series' run. So yeah. she should have had a similar dynamic with people as it Charlie Charlie does, if not more so, because she's a permanent member compared to Charlie, who becomes a member. Right. And that's I, I'll just say this for the next episode, because we see that being built on in the next episode. And then, like you said, uh, we get the payoff of Sterling saying that I will die rather than disappoint my father. So he literally does that. Now, it's been a week since I've watched this. Did he say that around Charlie? Did Charlie know that? Yeah, that in their first exchange, when so, she's detecting right. if he's telling the truth or not, part of his thing is that they all know he thinks I'm a fuck up. I would rather die than prove him right. And that's where she knows he's telling the truth, which is that's what I kind of pointed out earlier. So we can come back here and see that she may act surprised here, but he literally told her that at the start of the show that I would die rather than have that happen, which one level she knows because she used this as her leverage of like recording that conversation and having mm-hmm. fucked them earlier in the day compared to here where she knows that she can't do anything to them and they have her in that room. Right. And there's a great triple threat that's happening. So I want to double check that because during this revelation, uh, the first level is a clear Columbo homage, right? Short of her saying one more thing. She does the, okay, that's cool. Take a, take a step away, turn back, and provide another piece of information, right? That's a classic Columbo moment. The second layer is that when she does it, it looks like she has been outmaneuvered until she puts that on the table. 
And then once he kills himself, you realize the third layer is that maybe she wasn't outmaneuvered. Maybe she was reluctant because she knew where this was going to go. It's like, oh, man, if I do this, this guy's going to die. And yeah, he's fucked me, but I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want that on my, on my conscience because there's actually even a fourth layer is if he does that, his dad's going to come after me. So the, we'll get that in the last bit here, but. Leone is doing some extremely complicated emotional layering of her performance that is not immediately obvious. So this is uh, a different kind of intricacy as opposed to, like I said, Knives Out, where the whole film is the puzzle box. This is the characters are the puzzle box. And each time we see more of these characters, another piece clicks into place and we learn more about them. So it's not so, – again, it's not about solving the mystery. We know what the answer is. It's about how these people react when the pressure is applied in very specific moments. Yeah. Uh, so let me get to the last bit because I want to talk about one more thing. Um, Cliff chases Charlie through the halls and shoots her in the side. She manages to leave the casino through a window and escapes Laughlin. At the bar, she sends the photos that Natalie took from Kane's laptop to the authorities. She is then called by Sterling Sr., who is Ron Perlman apparently who, devastated by the loss of his son, vows to track her down and kill her. Charlie destroys her phone and flees in her blue Plymouth Barracuda, which is, again, amazing 70s thing. You say kill her. He doesn't say he's going to kill her. It's very heavily implied. <laughs> I, I, I'm merely pointing out he does not say that. He, he's like, so what? what's our deal? What are we going to do? It, it is definitely implied, but yeah. un, before you really get into more more pertinent things i do want to point out that i love the fact that cliff actually shot charlie to yeah. show that he is not a bad shot and mm-hmm. he's not a stormtrooper right yeah it retroactively provides stakes in the sense of through most of this like you said before it's a little unclear if the son is threatening her life or her job right it's implied that her dad is scary because everyone's terrified of – sorry, his dad is scary. Everyone's terrified of Senior. But this guy doesn't feel like he can quite build up the, the gumption to kill someone because he gets called out on it by Cliff. Cliff repeatedly says, I don't think you're strong enough to make these decisions. We see Cliff in action here. We realize, yes, not only did he cold-bloodedly murder this woman, but also he'll happily do it again. And so Cliff is kind of really the, the menace of the story. And to see him actually competent, the main reason why he doesn't get her is because she's just a few seconds too fast. She, she's slightly yeah. ahead of the game, just slightly ahead of the game. All of her intellect, all of her ability, all of her planning, she's still only just a bit ahead of Cliff. Uh, and that's really interesting and plays to – this show because although this is a 70s style homage it is not episodic i'm glad i decided to do the first three episodes because there is strong continuity between episodes it's very much a 2023 drama on how it's structured and this is how we make tv now but each episode still has a lot of episodic flavor but there is still a strong b-plot going through this charlie being shot at the end of this episode is immediately relevant next episode for example I'm trying to think if I've seen Benjamin Bratt be a villain in anything else, and I cannot think of anything where I've seen him be the bad guy. I know that he, he was so a, a wastrel in Doctor Strange, the first one. He was like the first surgeon, 
who went to learn, try to learn the, the secret arts of magic. Right. To get fixed. Yeah, no, he's, he's genuinely scary, which I did not expect. But again, we're talking about just one guy with a pistol. That that's that's the the level we're at here. It, it's it's but that is terrifying because the 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 episode has been so well constructed that this is the arena that Charlie lives in, and so it doesn't have to be massive scare. We don't have to have an entire mob or an entire mafia. It's just one guy's dad who's pissed off and his extremely well armed subordinate. That's all and, we need for this to be scary. And he's so scary because he is efficient and just, and it's his job. Like he doesn't care really about you right now. It's just the thing that he has to do. And that is scarier than like a maniacal killer who is just out to kill people for the joy of it. Like that's something you could deal with easier, I think, than a calculating person who is just a professional. Right. It's, it's the, it's the mundanity of the evil. Uh, And I mean, again, it's not a surprise in retrospect because mm-hmm. these are people who overlooked what appears to be child porn to get a few extra bucks out of somebody. So yeah. they and they killed someone because she happened to see something that was inconvenient for their plan of getting some extra bucks out of this guy. Killed her and her husband. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a elaborate intricate plan and it's not scenery chewing evil. It's just it, it's it's disturbingly easy to see. It's it's disturbingly easy to to not empathize, but certainly understand why this is happening, and that makes it even more terrifying and more scary for Charlie because we understand how it got here. It, there's no surprise as to how it got here, and to some extent, scary for the viewer because this is closer to real life, I think, than yeah. most other detective shows. And more I more so it than the cop because- shows and anything else like on NBC or CBS. Like this is yeah. something that could be happening right next door to you. Yeah. And the, the, the best thing is, is that so what seems to be a rain Johnson signature is that Charlie is not directly the person who brings justice, right? The son kills himself. She simply presents him with information. Uh, and then again, she sends the information to the authorities and to the media and then leaves. We actually don't know. What happens to the guy who had the laptop? Don't know what happens. All we know is that enough information is presented so that the, the, the authorities now have the correct information so that they can make sure that the correct person is at least cleared. It's, it's not a murder-suicide, but we don't see the ramifications of that. We don't see the results of that. Uh, so we don't – we don't we see the immediate justice done. Junior is dead. But Charlie did not directly cause that to happen. She indirectly caused that to happen. And that also lets us avoid having to root for a law enforcement person to do something, given the very problematic nature of law enforcement previously and currently. And if Mm -hmm. you don't know what I'm talking about, you can Google it. I'm not going to go into it today. (laughs) Right. But it lets us avoid all of that by having someone who is Robin Hood-esque just trying to do the good thing. Yeah. Anything else about this episode before we move on to episode two? It was fun to watch her destroying her phone because as a a modern day person, that pained my soul. It's like, I can't live without my phone now. What would I do? That's it. Yep. (laughs) 
Okay, episode two, the night shift. In New Mexico, Damien is a Marine Corps veteran who now works at a subway. Ma massive product placement. Uh, he often visits Sarah, a convenience store clerk who has a crush on to buy a lot of her ticket every day. As part of their routine, Sarah lends Damien a state quarter from her collection to scratch the ticket. A young mechanic named Jed is also interested in Sarah, although he makes her uncomfortable. Damien visits Jed to urge him to dial back his behavior, which seems to disturb Jed. Damien suddenly realizes he finally won $25,000 in the lottery, which prompts Jed to throw him off the roof of his auto shop. He then finishes killing Damien with a blow to the head, although Damien slashes Jed in the calf before dying. After stealing a lottery ticket, Jed disposes of Damien's body by hiding it in a parked semi-truck nearby. Returning to his shop, he spies a trucker, Marge, discover the body, and stash it next to a dumpster. He calls the police to report Marge in order to deflect suspicion. So, again, we have a situation where uh, we build up the relationships reasonably quickly. I mean, it's about 10 minutes long. It, it, it's slightly longer opening uh, in this one. Uh, but it's necessary because we have three main characters we need to establish and a fourth one that we'll get to know a bit later, which is Marge. And again, it's the fascinatingly low stakes of all of this because literally a guy gets – we boil this down. A guy gets shoved off a roof because he won 25 grand. And it's not even – there's no – if you watch the scene, there's no delay. I just went dollars and he's immediately shoved off the roof. <laughs> but I mean because the, the, the small town they live in, 25 grand means everything. And everyone treats this – later in the episode, everyone treats it like he's a millionaire. Come on, Eddie. If you were sitting over there. And you won 25,000 pounds, which I think is probably what, like 33,000 33, US dollars, yeah. maybe? That's off the top of my head, Matt. Mm. Are you telling me that everyone around you wouldn't be like, Eddie, you're the man, buy me a pint <laughs> everywhere you go? In London, it would probably cost me about $33,000 to buy a pint. So. <laughs> but Not as much. It, it's sort of that level of it, though. Like any, any windfall would automatically get you that sort of hype either from like friendly people that you know, or just from people that want or need money from something. And I'm sorry, but they're working at a gas station. I've been a ma an assistant manager at a gas station before when I was in college to make money to get by okay. you work in a mechanic shop or you work in a subway. You're making barely above minimum wage. At best. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like a thousand dollars would be, groundbreaking to potentially these characters. Right. But that's what's so great about this, right, is that when the murder happens, it's it's very fast. But also, you absolutely believe that that is enough money to kill for. They um, Ray Johnson spends the time to build these characters up and this town up so that way by the time it actually happens, it's it's believable. And that's really great. I want to take a step back from the murder, though, and delve a little bit more into the dynamics of Damien, Sarah, and Jed. To have okay. Damien be a veteran who's like mm -hmm. gone over, fought in a war. They later see accounting, which you get the fact that maybe he wasn't, maybe he was. But either way, something to... I'll, I'll be honest. That felt like I'm in Black Ops, but I can't say anything, so I'm going to say I'm in accounting. <laughs> Yeah. So, either way, 
a veteran with like service to come back and it shows the harsh reality of the universe because he's done all this stuff. He served his country, didn't die, comes back and he's working at Subway. Like I do not want to diminish Subway workers or sure. people that do that at all, but that is a drastic change to go yeah. from combat zone to sandwich maker and to then do something positive with it to get like a massive social media following, which then goes back and tells the story that even if you have a massive social media following, that's not making you money to live off of. Right. Like the layers of complexity in that, what, three minutes that we get right there? Yeah. Before we go over to start a, which could potentially be, some people, will, I'll generously say a love triangle. I, I'll give Jed that much for the killing psychopath that he is. <laughs> right. But like these two people who are flirting back and forth and like a jealous high school person to come in. Mm. Like that is a beautiful dynamic they built in less than five minutes. Yeah. And to then go and show you that Damien is trying to be a good guy still and help this other person that is definitely in need of something to move on to like, mm -hmm. maybe you need to leave town. Maybe you just need to do something else, but like recenter and focus on yourself while telling his own story that like, I've did all these things. I don't ever expect to win anything, but it's what I do to get through the day. Right. And, yeah. No, it, Damien is fantastic as a character because you're setting up for this to be a stereotype and it keeps subverting your expectations. Like, okay, he's a subway worker. So he doesn't mean, you know, he's, he's kind of a loser. No, he's very happy and he's doing this TikTok thing. Okay, cool, great. Turns out he's a veteran. Oh my God, great. Now he's going to talk to Jed, but he's not going to do the stereotypical threatening thing. He's genuinely trying to help Jed out. And, you know, Jed, you know, invites them up to look at the stars. And yes, he's creepy about it, but like, he's making some attempts. And again, he's trying to get Sarah to come there, but like, he doesn't bite both of them. There is an attempt at human relationships here, which makes the sudden turn all the more tragic. Because if it hadn't been for the murder, you can see that this, the tension between these three characters could have possibly been resolved amicably. Mm -hmm. There would have been a path forward where all three of them could have had a, 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 a decent life as a result of this. But Jed, I won't say makes a mistake because afterwards nope. it's pretty clear this is premeditated. That was a, a conscious choice that he made. Mm -hmm. Right. Like my, my again, benefit was to say a love triangle, but that is an evil character who only thought of themselves to get something they wanted at the cost of someone else. And I admit for a while, again, Anybody else, I would have been, I would have been like, I don't know. But Jed started to be played as neuroatypical for a while, and I was like, I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable with the neurotypical, neuroatypical equals evil dynamic. But that gets changed pretty fast. Like, no, he's just awkward. He's just socially awkward, and, and he's absolutely knows what he's doing. And, and it, it's, especially when we see the um, him calling the police when he has the footage, it's like, okay. Buddy, you know exactly what you're doing. Uh, this is not a crime of passion. It may have started off as a crime of passion, but uh, but he has since very quickly went to premeditation. I wouldn't even say a crime of passion. Like I say, it could it, be because they Johnson pauses on him long enough to show you that he thinks through all those steps and what it means in a quick instant, and then makes a choice. Right. Like passion would have just been I. I won $25 million, like $25,000. Sarah and I push like that's 
the passion compared sure. to I won this. Wow. Thought, 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 push. Fair, fair, right. But it, it, it's enough that there's, there's a, again, a, a mild question. Uh, but then soon afterwards, it, any doubt gets thrown out the window. And even then, in the middle of all this, Rain Johnson finds ways to add comedic beats to dark, dark concepts. So the bit where, like, he's wheeling the body across the street <laughs> to get to the truck is <laughs> amazingly funny. Jesus. Oh. And to go into it, how he's also been turning off the security cameras to be able to go up to the roof. Yep. Shows you a constant thing of like slightly always breaking the law, breaking the rules, breaking the rules, reinforced. Right. Don't get me wrong. That is a great view from that roof, though. Just be sitting up there drinking a beer. Yeah, I, I, I can see why he does it. All right. Moving on. Uh, one day prior, Charlie is forced to leave her Plymouth Barracuda at the auto shop. The head mechanic, Abe, informs her the repair will cost $400, which Charlie does not currently have. It allows her to keep the Plymouth at the shop under the care of his nephew, Jed. After buying a sandwich from Damien, she stops at the restroom and meets Marge. Charlie then passes out due to blood loss shortly afterwards. Marge treats her gunshot wound with super glue and gives advice on how to go off the grid, telling her she must forgo her past life. With no money and nowhere to stay, Charlie is forced to sleep outdoors on a picnic table. <laughs> Next day, Charlie returns to the shop and discovers the crime scene, which led to Marge's arrest. Jed returns to the convenience store and buys a lottery ticket, pretending to have won with Damien's ticket. Since March told her that she was once attacked, tracked to a location within four hours by using an ATM there, Charlie retrieves $460 from the ATM and starts a four-hour timer on her watch, by which time she assumes Cliff will have tracked her. She has her car fixed and prepares to leave. However, she decides to stay after hearing that March supposedly bludgeoned Damien despite carrying a gun. Charlie refused footage of the convenience store's cameras and questions Sarah. Charlie believes Sarah when she says Damien never won the lottery, but suspects Jed of lying when he says the same. So again, we'll pause there. Uh, I mean, jump to the middle of this because I love the part where she hears on the radio that uh, the victim was bludgeoned to death. And the look in her face, like, I, I don't want to, I really shouldn't. And then the car stopping and her turning around <laughs> tells you everything you know about Charlie. She can't, even though she was part of this community for like less than 24 hours, clearly both Abe and Marge warmed up to her very, very quickly. And she feels some kind of responsibility to them. And it's like, oh God, I gotta, I gotta find out. And then so she sets this timer and says, I, I could solve this in four hours. And it's good. I'm I'm almost there with you, but here I'm still not there quite there yet because we have Marge who literally saved her life and did her a solid. Right. So that is a returning a favor in a sense, like the solid right. person that saved my bacon. I think the least I can do is to then go and try to save theirs because I know they didn't do this. Thing. Right. You know, that, yeah. I mean, that that's the big part of it, but also they established early that because we see throughout the, the, the early sequence that the body shop has a sign that says the only the last honest mechanic in the state. And when Charlie goes to him to get the car repair to Abe, and Abe says, a cost $400, and she's like, yeah, I believe you, because we know she detects lies. So <laughs> in that exchange, we know Abe genuinely is, in fact, the last honest mechanic in the state. <laughs> Can we say how nice it was to see Cliff that he, he managed to, to leave the bar and became a mechanic <laughs> later in life. He left his post to work. <laughs> yes. John Rosenberg. That's uh, again, it's the, 
you see people, you go, oh, I remember that person, that that vibe from 70s television. Uh, and for anyone that doesn't know, that is a Cheers joke because he was Cliff in Cheers. The the, the mailman, yep. Uh, but also, again, like th- this is as far as we can tell, like the next day in the previous episode. Or very close because she's still bleeding from her gunshot wound. And her meeting up with Marge actually does a couple of things really, really fast. Is one, obviously, it builds a connection uh, to Marge and, and shows that even someone who's very paranoid, Charlie can get and, and make a connection with them, which is fantastic. But also, it's a great way to introduce the things that Charlie's going to have to do through the series to avoid detection. It's like, can't use credit cards, got to use cash, got to find jobs, guys. So Marge manages to to do a lot of exposition in a way that is also doing WWE as character building. To say, this is the stakes we're looking at, and this is the things that Charlie's going to have to do throughout this show. And it was also great to see more representation right there, because you have Marge, who after Charlie wakes up and is feeling better, gives like that long lingering, oh, we're going to do this thing? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. And Charlie go, no, I guess not. Go, All right. Well, you want to go get a drink like representation right there. And it's not someone being problematic, either representation. It was just spot on. They're like, hey, let's have some sexy time. No. All right. Well, let's just go get a drink and hang out then. Right. Like loved yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And then also uh, in this early investigation bit. We, we get a nice wrinkle. Uh, this is the same problem that I think a lot of shows or games that use magic or technology that are outside of human experience deal with, is you have to have limitations on your power. It can't just be always active, right? And we get a limitation right away in the second episode, which is that when I talk to this person about him never winning, if I tell the truth, I talk to this person never winning, he's lying. And I don't, and she's like, this is, this is doing my head in. I don't know how... You could be telling the truth and you could be lying about the exact same statement. Because Charlie gets no context for her ping, if you will. She just knows if you're lying or not. But I don't know what the context is for the lie. I just get a binary result. And that's, again, interesting. She's a superpower that we never explained, but we're starting to see the rules of that power now. Well, they even start to establish some of that when she first interacts with Adrian Brody in the first episode because he asks her something and she's like, it doesn't work like that. Oh, that's true, true. You get an establishing point, and we're slowly defining it as we go throughout the series. Right. So what this is helping is that this is not – her power is not going to get her out of situations. It's going to actually put her into situations more often than anything else. Uh, So it's it's, it's not a convenient plot device to solve the mystery. It is, in fact – a very idiosyncratic ability that's going to actually make things harder for her as well as make things easier for her. So that is how I run my superhero games, by the way, whenever I run them. Superpowers are not the end-all, be-all solution. They are a tool in your toolkit that you can use. It may give you some advantages, but they're also uh, disadvantages to having them too. Yeah. And honestly, I want to make the obvious example here, but um, it reminds me a lot of how the sonic screwdriver is used in modern-day Doctor Who, which is that it allows you to bypass the boring parts of the story, but it doesn't let you get past the interesting parts. Uh, and like so, make force feels. Okay. Maybe not very recent Doctor Who. <laughs> 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 but certainly 
2005 to about 2015, let's say. Uh, that's the same thing with lying here is that we don't have to worry about the is this person telling the truth or not and getting to the bottom of things that happens. We don't have to do that every single conversation. No. The choice is bullshit. We know it's true. We can move on. But we also realize that – and again, we saw that in the first episode. If people start phrasing things a certain way, we can start to see, okay, we know he's lying. But he's, we also know he's phrasing things in a way that's not actually a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that Charlie's getting tripped up by that. So we as the audience recognize when the criminals are starting to be clever. And that's interesting because Charlie doesn't know if they're lying or not. Brilliant. So good. So again, the the, the the narrative or sorry, the structural complexity is not in the mystery; it is in the characters, which is what, so it's a, it's a change in focus, but it's still very much Rain Johnson. All right, anything else about that chunk before I get to the final bit? Nah, okay. I'm good. At Subway again, how much does Subway pay for this product placement? Charlie finds distinct bottle cap in Damien's uniform. She notices a time gap in the auto shop security footage during which the camera angle changed and nearby objects were moved. On the rooftop, where she finds multiple caps of the same brand as the one found in Damien's uniform, as well as the Hawaii quarter Sarah had lent him. Jed shows up after having his advances rejected by Sarah. Uh, Charlie confronts him over Damien's visit to the rooftop, and Jed claims that Damien visited him to tell him to leave Sarah alone. Checking the scratch off... She and Sarah briefly retrieve Jed's quote-unquote ticket. Uh, Charlie notes that the serial number of the winning ticket is several numbers behind that of a discarded ticket bought immediately before Jed claimed to be bought the winning ticket, revealing that the winning ticket is actually purchased some time before. Charlie accuses Jed of murdering Damien. Jed, knowing he's just fugitive, threatens to turn her into the police. Charlie reluctantly leaves as her timer beeps. However, when she hears about the hidden camera show on the radio, she visits the diner to ask about the trucker with a dash cam that filmed Damien's murder. She managed to identify the trucker and instructs the patrons to contact him and report the killings to the police. Meanwhile, Cliff arrives at the convenience store. When he asks Sarah about Charlie, she misleads him into thinking that Charlie is headed to Los Angeles after noticing that he's carrying a gun. Abe confronts Jed, pointing out the brakes in Charlie's car were sabotaged, but that he fixed them. Abe implies that he knows what Jed has done. As night falls, Jed burns the lottery ticket as police arrive at the auto shop. Uh, and again, this is something that is a little muddier in the first episode, but it's much clearer here. Charlie doesn't actually bring justice she gives people of that community the ability to do it themselves which is very reminiscent of benoit blanc who at the same time doesn't bring justice but provides the information to others right and it's a little rushed but when she is talking to the truckers at the end they're like i never thought march did it and so when she's like, you guys need to tell the police, here's where we find information, I got to go by. Then they're happy to do that. Again, we had so much focus on the core uh, cast here that we didn't have much time to flesh out the, the trucker community. Uh, and therefore, that, it's a little fast-paced, uh, but it's still plausible. It's clear they knew who Marge was. It's clear they knew Marge's idiosyncrasies, let's say. Um, and so they had at least some kind of emotional connection to her. Uh, and it's pretty, we, we know that tight-knit communities generally uh when one of theirs are accused of like that they're they're reluctant to believe especially when the authorities claim it's true so we do it's it's all plausible it doesn't feel forced or wrong it's just fast 
And but one of the things that is intrinsically true almost of humans is that they bond together over a problem. And while Charlie may have been an outsider, it gave them all something to work on together. And you get to see how unity and community building works as they're figuring out this thing together. So much so that one of them just like breaks out in the song right there, regardless of anything, to show you how it's all layered together and how they're all working. Right. And again, we have a moment of Charlie who's she's not intellectually she doesn't have a lot of random knowledge crammed in her head she's trying to figure out the name of an animal and she's desperately trying to doodle with crayons on this napkin to get people to figure out fox uh and it's it's a comedic moment but again it, it shows that charlie is not a perfect detective there are some things that she's not great about but also those aren't the details that matter she can find someone who knows those details and get them to help her and that's the more important part of it because if you want to chart her progression there, you just look at the waitress who yeah. goes from like utter, like, I don't care who you are to right. Molly talking to her to now being integral to figuring out the Fox clue. Like that is a background character that has no, that I think has very little purpose other than to show you how Charlie is integrating herself in the community within a day. Yeah. I, I did love the waitress of uh, the comments of like, you know, Charlie's, Hey, thanks for uh, hiding out with me. Is that what we were doing? And it's such a neutral line that you could read it either way. And then we see that last bit where she's actually helping is okay. We, we now know retroactively that was just a, a, a gag, but at the time we weren't entirely sure if she was actually warming up to Charlie or not. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, there was something else I want to do about this bit blanking on it. So um, I am curious about your opinion of cliff and no, go ahead. Finish your thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> how your opinion on how quickly Cliff was able to get there within a four hour window, because then that would go back and reinforce that she has not gone that far since being shot. If he was able to show up within four hours. Right. So she went from Nevada to New Mexico. And while my geography is a little fuzzy, I do think it's possible, particularly if he was driving very fast. It does imply that Cliff and Sterling Sr. have enough resources they probably were immediately pinged when she used a credit card. Um, and it's not dead on four hours because she does have time to go to the, um, uh, the diner and have a conversation with the, the, the truckers before she leaves. Um, so it's about four and a half hours. Uh, but still. Yeah, she's not gotten very far, and that's that's an interesting. It's a moment of continuity, and this is again a show that's very designed to be a modern show that has strong continuity episodes. But it's not, as we've often lamented in some other shows, a chopped up movie. Right? These are clearly yeah. episodes. These are episodes of a TV show, but not much time has passed, and there's a strong connectivity between them. So I thought it was great. I thought it was perfectly well well suited. So die. And this is, I'll, I'll give another dig at them, something that potentially Marvel should have contacted RJ to come and help yeah. them write their own series. But given what happened with Star Wars, probably not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, the other thing I remembered is I want to talk about Abe a bit uh, because, again, initially nervous because it's someone with hearing aids uh, and someone's like, oh, yeah, I can't really do well without my hearing aids and i'm like okay well he's an older man but 
So let's see what this. The bit where they're Jed's threatening her. And you hear the squeak of the hearing aids, and he goes, Oh, sorry, I turned them up too loud. And then afterwards you realized he was listening in the whole time. That felt very authentic to me. He probably did actually turn his hearing aid up to listen to them, to hear what was going on, went too high, got feedback, and everyone heard it, and so he had to play it off. Because um, I, I I have not used my hearing aids to eavesdrop in any way that I will admit to on this podcast. But <laughs> I know that the technology can be used in such a way. And the, it showed that just because he had hearing loss doesn't mean he's unaware of his environment. And I did really appreciate that. And the fact that he quietly just fixed her brakes was such a great moment, such a great hero moment for Abe. Good, because I wanted to, I was going to be the thing I wanted to ask you about. And thank you for that. Yeah, it was. But there's another really nice point of the the quiet nature of the the communities that Charlie inadvertently or intentionally gets involved in. A just fixing the brakes and not saying anything, so Charlie had no clue that happens at all. Or Sarah, with, with with remembering Charlie hates Sun and Sands, and then when she sees the gun, just says, "Oh yeah, I know. I think she went to Los Angeles." Those quiet little moments show that heroism doesn't have to be about big expository things. Um, it's just good people doing right by somebody who helped them out it is a great way of continuing to sell this universe. Yep. Love it. I don't have any other comments on this one. I could go on probably, but I'm, I'm happy to move on to the yeah, next. Yeah, because I want to I get this last episode in. Episode three, The Stall. In rural Texas, Taffy Boyle runs a popular BBQ joint with his brother, George. However, George informs Taffy he's quitting the business after deciding to turn vegan. Taffy is not an expert cook and is also asked for a loan from shady organizations in Dallas, which he must pay. Taffy accepts George's request and drinks a beer with him. At night, he hosts a radio talk show and leaves for 16 minutes during a pre-recorded segment about sausage. He goes to George's trailer home where George is passed out from drugged beer. Taffy locks the trailer and uses a hose to suffocate George via a meat smoker. Taffy's attacked by a wild dog who barks at him, forcing him to hit on the head to avoid detection. He resumes talk show in the nick of time. <laughs> I, I could help myself. Pre-recorded segment about sausage. Like that is that is it is it is so humorous while some of the most vilest shit happens during that time. Oh. I know. But, but, it's such a tonal whiplash, this whole thing, because like it is some of the most hilarious sh- and also on top of it, just the 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 George's not George's uh, Taffy's problems during the murder and him having to constantly pivot to try to get things to work and then being attacked by the dog. <laughs> it's almost comedic, but it's also really dark shit the whole time. And it goes into showing you that like no plan survives execution. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is great because, like, so the first, the the first one is was done by a person who's clearly used to these kinds of of cover ups. The second one is someone who took advantage of an opportunity, but then had a reasonably good plan. This is one where this is a little more human in scope in the sense of 
if I was going to plan a murder, it probably would go about like this, right? <laughs> I do not sympathize with Taffy, but I certainly empathize with Taffy in terms of I've had things go wrong in my life kind of like this, not necessarily a murder, but you know, certainly, oh, this thing happened now. So it's like, I, I, I don't feel for you, but it feels very human and authentic. Is this the right time to tell everyone that we've started a new joint venture together that's going to be a barbecue joint? It's like international barbecue. And that's the other thing. Like the, the, the twist of George Kennedy going, I'm a murderer is so good <laughs> because he's not the murderer, but it's, it's, it's such a dumb twist, but it's brilliant at the same time. Oh God. It, it is so well done. Like the writing is always on point. The directing is usually exceptional. The acting is always, always top notch. Yeah. Oh yeah, you you get George and Taffy's relationship and personalities again very quickly, but in this case, it is all a huge amount of it is just the actors are absolutely the the actors are playing the characters a bit over the top so they can ramp it down later, and it's a great move because you you, you get them in a very short space and then afterwards you get the complexity and nuance here. But right now they're they're played a little broadly and that's the way to do it for this moment. You know you know why it's bigger, right? Because it's in Texas? <laughs> yes! Yes! There it is! <laughs> the other thing I liked, honestly, is I have not been in Texas a ton, but I have been in Texas a few times for like conventions and see friends and whatnot. Um, and it did feel like an accurate portrayal of Texas. Yeah. I, it, I've it, never it, been to Texas, but from what I've read about and seen, because mm-hmm. I'm not going to Texas. Right. But at the same time, uh, it was a, let's say, a more authentic representation of the actual people who live in Texas <laughs> than perhaps some <laughs> of the people who claim to be from Texas feel like Texas should be. <laughs> Love to put that there. So when are we going to do our own 16-minute segment about Sausage Eddie on the podcast? <laughs> Honestly, it, I think we've already done our 16-minute segment on uh Sonic Screwdrivers and Dr. <laughs> Hernity. And we'll probably do a 16-minute segment on JNT because you keep fucking threatening me with that. I don't know. It, it is up to you however long that segment's going to be. I'm going <laughs> to sit, sit there and go, uh-huh. Uh-huh. What about... What about... But that's the other thing. Like, again, the small scale of this, that radio program probably broadcasts maybe you know, 30, 40 miles? It's it's not like a big, huge radio station that covers a major metropolitan area. It's probably an extremely small listening audience. And it's little things like that that really show the scale of this. Yeah. And the other thing I like, though, is they don't tell you how much money he's borrowed. But yeah. at the same time, their business isn't ginormous. It's popular in their area, but it's not huge. So still, once again, reinforcing how small in scope all this is. Yeah, this is, to be honest, it's a, it's a family-owned business, it's a restaurant, and it's probably failing, which is a very common scenario to a lot of people. Especially during COVID, because in the D.C. Yeah. area, we used to have so many amazing like small restaurants like mom and pop shops mm-hmm. lining the streets and going like – having recently been in D.C. again – and walking down the streets, just seeing all these closed shops and abandoned areas where restaurants used to be that we used to haunt. 
is is saddening in on some yeah. levels and it's all because to some extent because of covid and the impact that had on everyone in those small businesses that were their lifeblood was the people trickulating by on the street right yeah so it's again it, it, it's an understandable reaction if not a, a sympathetic one um it's the i gotta keep my family business alive I'm going to do it by murdering my family. Okay, maybe that probably shouldn't have been the right answer, but I could see why you're desperate. And having a relationship with my sister-in-law. Right. <laughs> Which is is also something that is is very human and happens frequently. And also, I mean, this is the first time where, I mean, well, technically speaking, it's the second time where we have an accomplice uh, involved, but it's the first time where... Uh, the accomplice is not intricately involved with the scenario, right? Um, she she has a, a different role in this than, say, the, the Cliff and Sterling had. So it's interesting to see, okay, now Charlie has to deal with two people and whether they're lying or not. I know that you're going to get to this in a minute. It's a slight spoiler, but it is in inverse. I think you were about to touch on it, of the Cliff and Sterling plan because Adrian Brody's mm-hmm. character is the one that came up with the plan and Sterling had to execute compared to here while he's executing, she created the plan for him. And he had, and it looks like he has a power dynamic. looks like he has a power compared to she doesn't. And the other one, Adrian Brody appeared to have the power and Sterling didn't, but it's not true. It's the other way around. Right. And again, uh, it, it, it very short space, an interesting, complicated emotional relationship. Obviously the, the, love triangle that George is unaware is a love triangle, but also the dynamic of the artist brother and the business brother, right? Like lots of people, my, I, as, as the artist in my family, I understand George's side of the dynamic of the, I have a strong passion. I, I really want to do this. I sometimes my emotions flip and I can't entirely control them. Um, and sometimes that frustrates the more business minded members of my family. So it's like, I, I, I sympathize with that, but, and, but it's in the very small space, which is really, really great. That's all I got. Moving on. A few days before, Charlie arrives in the area. She's forced to keep a feisty dog who jumps into her car and will not leave. I actually have to stop here real quick. (sighs) I should not have laughed so hard at racist dog. (laughs) 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 MAGA dog was hysterical. (laughs) We've already established, and sorry, the, the... Classic Scrooge established that animals themselves need their own media to engage with. Right. Be it string, <laughs> be it racist on the radio, they need something that engages them. <laughs> anyway, uh, the dog runs into the barbecue joint, causing damage to the food, prompting Taffy to demand $300 in reimbursement, which is obviously way too much. As she does not want to leave any trace, George offers to buy back the money by working with him. Offers her to buy back the money uh, by working with him. Uh, during the next few days, the two bond over George's cooking methods, and he she hands him a few DVDs to pass time. Next day, George has a change of heart as his profession after watching Okja. <laughs> after informing Taffy that he is quitting, he talks with Charlie about his uncertain future, but Charlie's forced to go back to work when Charlie when George explains his only plan. That night, after finishing a talk show, Taffy informs George's wife, Mandy, that the plan is complete. An employee sees George's trailer filled with smoke, which provides Taffy with an alibi. The police conclude that George committed suicide. Barbecue Joint holds a funeral for George, where Taffy's stating that he plans to get the business going to honor him. 
On the road, Charlie finds the dog, who turned out to not be dead, but only badly wounded. She takes the dog to the veterinarian, who states the dog was attacked with a piece of wood. Charlie notes that the wood says it's the same as the pecan wood that George used in his cooking. She raises her suspicions to Tappy, who rebuffs any of the events and even warns her to leave Texas, indirectly threatening her with a shotgun. I need to go back and state now, it is not the scent that she notices. She tastes the wood every single time. That is what I have to say. Please, we can move on now. <laughs> Oakja is the best Netflix product placement I think I've ever seen. Because I was like, I've never heard of this film. What is it about? And she's like, I watched the first half. It seems cute. And I, tur- I actually Googled it. It turns out it's about a bioengineered pig that gets slaughtered. And then the, 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 the girl who falls in love with him then goes on a quest to, to stop people from eating meat. <laughs> so it's the worst possible film she could have shown a guy who runs a barbecue. But of course, he's immediately like, that would get the I'm a murderer gag now. No. Because like, I killed people for meat. Now that you mention that, I I do want to take a beat then and say that it is funny how they keep inserting all of the shows and everything else into this series because we even get a burn notice joke in the pilot episode. Yep. Right. But what's interesting now is that the first episode, if Charlie wasn't there, the murder would have gotten off scot-free. In the second episode, if Charlie wasn't there, the murder probably would have gotten off scot-free. But Charlie's being there did cause Marge to park a little further away. So Charlie somewhat shaped that, but not to a huge extent. In this episode, if Charlie wasn't there, this murder might not have happened. And that's Mm -hmm. an interesting change in the formula. Mm -hmm. Because if Charlie did not show George that film... He would not have recanted, and they probably they probably still have problems, but he probably wouldn't have died. True. And that's that's interesting. The fact that it happens via a joke certainly helps to lessen that. But so when Charlie sticks around to solve this, it's very clear she feels guilty. She feels guilty about what happened here. She doesn't quite know she's the reason behind it. I don't think she ever entirely figures it out um, because she, George never tells her what her, his plan is. But she does feel a strong sense of guilt about what happens as well as just, frankly, affection for George. So it, it's an interesting change in uh, the vibe of the show. But again, it manages to do it in a way that doesn't make Charlie painted to be a monster. She just accidentally causes this to happen. And she's doing it out of good intentions. And to some extent, though, I would say that it is almost a not reverse, but plays into how she doesn't ever bring justice. She provides the vehicle in which other people can act on. And that works the same way for them deciding to kill George. She provided the motivation for them to do it. But then it comes down to human nature, what you do with that. Right. And an argument could be made that George probably would come to this realization himself at some point in the future anyway. And so some form of this probably would have played out regardless. Um, Charlie accelerated a timeline that would have probably have happened because George is still going to be the sensitive soul. Probably at some point in time, ha- would have Charles reconciled his art with his ethics and made this decision, which would then put Taffy into a bad situation. Or he would have found out about the affair with Taffy and yep. Mandy. And made a similar, I'm out, and pushed us. So 
it's it's a very good balance of it doesn't paint Charlie as the reason why it happened. Rather, she is a force that caused this <laughs> series of events to come about. And that's an interesting balance that, frankly, again, because Rain Johnson's very careful about these things, is pulled off almost flawlessly to the point where I had to when I was writing the summary, I realized, oh shit, Charlie Charlie's the reason this happened. I didn't have to think about it the entire episode until it I thought about it when I was thinking through how these things played out. Because you even have Taffy, who's keeping the books, who is rigging the books, would have continued to do so. Yep. Because the only reason he's not doing now is because of the death of George and then the wife stepping in to take over that part of it to make sure it doesn't happen again. Would have continued to have done shady dealings until something happened. Right. So I joked about it being Charlie's fault. It's not actually really her fault. It's ultimately Taffy's fault. (laughs) But... (laughs) It gives her a different reason to be invested in this community, which is, yeah. again, the fact is that you could have, frankly, just coasted on Charlie's goes in as charismatic, makes friends, ultimately gets wrapped up in a mystery. But three episodes in, we've seen three different variations on this formula already, which is she's already there. She had a time limit as this community, and the she spent several days with these people. We're already seeing variations on a theme. So for a 10-episode show, that's actually really great that they're not coasting on their morals and i i hands down i i love this show and i think it's great there are a few weaker episodes and you did not pick any of those so kudos to you my friend oh good okay i i, I literally just looking through the first three so i mean i'm not surprised that the middle episodes are weak because that's just that's just television series in general right yeah like the only reason why i didn't move on to episode four is because i did not want to muddy my perceptions of this uh, to keep pure to the process, but I probably will after we're done go back up to the floor and keep watching because I really <laughs> like the show. <laughs> okay, so to wrap it up, uh, Charlie sneaks into George's trailer, finding that dental floss was used to lock the door from outside. She is caught by Mandy, who sits down for a beer with her. Charlie expresses her suspicions and reveals her ability to detect lies, unaware that Mandy conspired with Taffy in the murder. This prompts Mandy to tell Taffy about this, as well as Charlie knowing about the dog attack. Charlie tests the distance that Taffy could have used in order to go into radio stations to trailer, suspecting that he pre-recorded his talk show. She suspects Mandy is involved in the recorded segments needed a certain question that Mandy provided, which she deflects. Mandy warns her to leave as she does not have any proof. Next day, Charlie confronts Taffy. She has found that George's beer bottle was washed clean and deuced it was laced with ambium, and that Taffy left the radio station because the recording did not include the sound of a passing train that night. She then had one of Taffy's radio co-workers, Austin, imitate Taffy and call Mandy, telling her that he wants to confess. Charlie distracts Taffy long enough for the police and Mandy to arrive, with Mandy having reached authorities first to identify Taffy as the killer. While accompanying a police officer in the cruiser, Austin broadcasts Mandy's confession, leading to her arrest as well. Charlie leaves the area with Austin keeping the dog under his care. I want to talk about how amazing Austin is. (laughs) It is totally played for humor to have Charlie come in and see there's like this uh, young black man sitting behind the the radio doing all these different voices for all these different shows and her knowing that like the rhetoric he was spewing was bullshit in the car before they even met. Yes. Yes. It also, again, quietly establishes a new rule for a truth telling is that it doesn't work over radio. She doesn't know someone's lying if she's hearing them over the radio. Mm-hmm. It has to be in person, uh, which is an interesting thing. Also, it doesn't work on dogs, but I don't think it's going to be a huge component going forward. Because we knew on cameras it was supposedly iffy on cameras. It wasn't like 100%. Right. 
she kept saying, I have to get a good look at him uh, in the first episode. So it's something about her needing to see the person that we saw. Um, and what defines a good look, again, even Charlie's not clear on. Um, but it definitely does not work over radio. We haven't yet determined if it works over phones or not. So that's an interesting thing I'll keep an eye out for. Uh, but so she's surprised when she finds out Austin's doing all these shows. <laughs> and she's like, she asks the obvious questions like, why are you doing this horrible racist shit? And he's just like, I bore. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody listens to this shit. And it's, I didn't want to be charmed by that, but I was. <laughs> you can't blame him. Having, having been a young person growing up in Alabama, I was bored off my ass too. And there's all sorts of stuff you would do to not be bored. Right. And it, it, it so the, the, I was talking about the dog character arc because I don't, this is a sentence that I just love saying. So we have this dog who's just an asshole. This dog is an asshole, right? And then we find out that that he likes this one radio show. And oh my god! And she again calls him Maga Dog. He, he repeatedly calls him a racist dog. Uh, and then dog gets hit by a car, and so it's like I feel bad for the dog. The dog's been injured. And then it turns out it's not the content of the show; is that the dog loves Austin. <laughs> and at first, I was like. Wait a minute, though. She listened to the radio. She listened to the radio at different times when Austin was playing different characters. The dog didn't react to them, and I remembered no, the dog was not with her during those other shows. It's just the dog loves Austin's voice, and that was to put that much effort into the emotional journey of a dog. You did not need to do that, Rain Johnson, and yet you did, and I love you for it. <laughs> it is so well done. Yeah. Because once again, the third time in a row, I'm like, I, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this. I mean, pulled it around once again. I'm like, oh, this is great. How did you like her confronting Taffy? I loved it because we we see a part of Charlie that we saw a glimmer of in episode one. We're seeing a better version of episode three is that she is a planner. When she has her teeth into a problem, because a lot of time we see her in a back foot. She's reacting to events very quickly. Um, when she has a chance to plan, she's good at it. Um, and of course, the, the twist being we don't see the plan until it's too late. So we have kind of the, the leverage bit of retroactively a plan this all along, right? Which is why, again, this is actually a good spot to talk about in this context rather than say a mystery context, because there's more than a bit of that kind of leverage or um, even a bit of, like I said, burn notice vibe in here. So it is really this criminal's doing good thing. But I love the fact that she confronts Taffy and we think we know what the plan is because she's done this before. She does the Columbo style. I'm going to explain the, what she did to you. And then she starts going off book and you're like, what the hell is happening? And you realize, no, that's not actually the plan. There's a different plan going on. And then, and then she does the, oh, it's something I learned from George, the stall. And I'm like, oh my God, that is such a bad <laughs> pun. And so beautiful at the same time. Oh. And the other thing is, I did not realize it until she said the stall. And like, again, I'm kicking myself for not realizing this. It took so long to realize it. Each of the episode titles is a poker term. 
Dead man's hand, knight shift, the stall. These are all yeah. turns from poker. And I'm like, why did I not realize that? Because they all have a very strong meaning inside of the episode they're talking about. <laughs> but the show is called Poker Face. Which then goes back to something else that uh, Johnson does all the time. Like, each of the Knives Out is a song title. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's kind of a, a shtick that he does that I like. Which is good, but it kind of leads towards, towards my, my summary of the show. But like, I continue to be amazingly impressed by Rain Johnson because it is such a lovely balance of nuanced and intricate structure that is completely unnecessary to distract you from the nuanced and detailed structure that is absolutely necessary for the storytelling. And you're even if you know going in the kind of sh like in this case i knew what kind of show i was going to going in i didn't when it first came out i then became a fan i knew i was going getting into it got into it and i was still delighted and surprised by it because i was continually looking in the wrong place even when it's like okay no i'm doing this for a podcast i have to analyze these shows study them and i was paying as careful attention as i possibly could and i still kept getting distracted because he continually puts the focus in different places slightly different each time and just when you think you know where the story's going it doesn't quite go there it's as an overall arc going there she's still going to keep being chased by cliff eventually they're going to have a confrontation with sterling i assume episode ted's going to be the conflict with with ron mm -hmm. Roland. Uh, i mean you know I, that's what i assume is going to happen but so the broad strokes absolutely keep working but how you quite get there is a little different each time. And it's that also Leone's absolutely amazing balance of drama and comedy. Just, I could see why the show is written on her because I don't, I can't, it's really hard for me to imagine anybody else in this role. Yeah. I guess my closing thoughts on the entire series, not to give you any spoilers because I've only seen three episodes, is that that exacting detail that to nuance is why the show is so repeatedly watchable. It becomes more of a game that Johnson and the viewer are doing together to mm -hmm. make it so much fun. Like mm -hmm. having watched it again, I noticed a couple little things I didn't notice the other two times I saw the show. So it's constantly picking up small clues that were laid out and seeing how he shifts things around on a chessboard. And mm -hmm. it's just unbelievably fun. Yeah. And for um, me, I think I'm starting to like the genre of Ketchum more than I like the whodunits because the whodunits more, most of the time don't give you all the clues to figure it out. Uh, that's a good point. And we, we, we danced around the idea of doing an actual proper mystery run, but <clears throat> the idea, there, there are Playfair mysteries, um, which is a subgenre of mystery. They have Playfair mysteries that the reader or watcher has all the clues the detective has and therefore theoretically could have made the same conclusions but didn't. Those are extremely hard to write. It's very easy to just show the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the answer. Now we're going to start watching. And it's a, it's a genre that as an artist, I know could very easily be bad. This is a harder, weird, a really a harder genre writing because you have to keep a compelling hour television when the audience knows absolutely everything 25 minutes in or 25% of the way in, I should say. So that's hard. And a lot of it is like 
you keep saying watchable, and that's absolutely true. The lead needs to be watchable. Peter Falk is absolutely watchable. James Garner is watchable. Huh? Just how James Garner was watchable for the Rockford Files. Like, those are the recurrent, like, Tom Selleck and Magnum P.I. Like, watchable people doing these things is the hook. If they don't have that something, it's not going to work. And I think the combination of that, combining it with a a lot of American-style, let's travel across the country and see the real parts of the United States-style show, um, and keeping that focus very firmly on the human understandable stakes this isn't about overthrowing the one percent again leverage is lovable a great show we've enjoyed watching it but that's very much about sticking it to the rich this is a very different style show this is about sticking it to people who are just trying to live their lives and make some really bad decisions or are just horrible people because the stakes are so small right Mm -hmm. and that you you want them to get justice but also you feel for a lot of the characters in these shows because they're so well cast, they're so well acted, so well written. And again, they all circle around such an intensely strongly. Like, and I say this as a Doctor Who fan, she has Tom Baker level of charisma, right? <laughs> like, she grabs you by the throat and says, Watch me. And I'm like, Yes, ma'am, I will. Any other thoughts on this, so we could so we can wrap up this episode. That, that's pretty much it. So tell me, Chris, what we're going to we talk about next week. We're we're done. We're back to Doctor Who. As we're we're ending our short run on uh, criminals doing good, we're going to close it out with a, a little known show called Hustle. We're going to go back overseas for Eddie is right now, and we're going to cover Hustle <laughs> season one episode one. The con is on season one episode four. Cops and robbers, and wrap it up with season one episode six. The gamble. Nice. And where can people find you online if they want to talk to you about Hustle? If you want to talk to me about Hustle, you can come find me in the Discord because that's going to probably be the best place to talk to me. Otherwise, you'll just get me advertising Darker Hue stuff on still on X advertising because it's where I have the, my largest social media following, Facebook or on Blue Sky if you manage to, to sneak your way on there. And if you need it, contact me and I'll give you one of my five invites I'm currently sitting on because I don't know who else to give them to. Yeah, same. I've got five Blue Sky invites, which is where I tend to do a lot of my promotions now. But really, if you go to Mastodon or Blue Sky at Pugsteady, you'll find me or my website, Pugsteady.com. Uh, if you would like to give me money, the best way to do that is to buy my Pugmire stuff, where you can get a cool game about dogs doing amazing stuff in a post-apocalyptic world. Which uh, Zora loved, by the way, when she huh? got her thing. Zora oh, loved she did? it, by the way, awesome. when she got her thing. Was she happy about the uh, the, the, the signature? <laughs> She was for a second. She took a beat. It was like, oh, it's a dog game. And then, then it all sort of sunk in. <laughs> nice. Eddie personalized nice. Zora's Pugmire for yes. our listeners that are curious what we're talking about. Yes. I'm, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. She said, but, I... uh, but yes, otherwise definitely come hang out with the darker hue discord. We, we have a lot of fun there. Uh, we talk about all sorts of things and sometimes serious stuff, but mostly it's just Chris tell me, here's the thing we should talk about now. <laughs> Uh, so yeah thank you all for uh, hanging out and we will see you next week when we talk about hustle